The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Well, thank you, choir and orchestra. Once again, you have blessed us today, and thank you for sharing with us. It's good to be back with you here in Richardson. I was out in the lobby doing the one thing I always want to do is get in good with the policeman, okay? And uh, and just in case we meet under other circumstances, I can uh, uh, let him know that we're supposed to be friends, all right? And uh, But it's good together with you. We'll be connecting, of course, to the East uh, Room and uh, service today as we do these two services live streaming. I believe next week, Bill, we are together. Praise the Lord for that. And uh, doing the Lord's Supper, and uh, please don't miss that. I The parable I'll be looking at next week is possibly one of the most searching parables in all of the Bible, and it will lead us into taking the Lord's table together. But we're going to look at one today that's very familiar, but I think sometimes familiarity breeds a, a sense of not understanding the truth of what's being said as we dig down into the hidden gem of, of a parable that has been known as the parable of the prodigal, all right? Why don't you stand with me, and we're going to honor God's word uh, by standing and reading with me Luke, the gospel of Luke, chapter number 15. Now, the tax collectors and Baptists, okay, and the sinners, okay, gathered together, uh, drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they must have been Baptists because they knew how to grumble, okay, saying, this man, he receives sinners and he eats with them. So he told them this parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders. Think of that image, rejoicing. And he comes home and he calls together his friends and his neighbors. And he says to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. So just that I'll tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 persons who say they need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses just one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, look at this next fray, and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over just one sinner who repents. Then he said this incredible personal story. This man had two sons, okay? The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of my property. By the way, in that day, generally the oldest child, uh, the older brother, would have gotten about half. The younger brother would have gotten about 25%. But this apparently was a wealthy man. And so, Father, give me what is coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into the far country. Then he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired out one of the citizens of the country, and and they sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And, of course, in the Jewish world, 
the lowest thing you could be is a person who feeds pigs, okay? Now, being a razorback, I think that's a little bit blasphemous, okay? And uh, we kind of like our hogs over there. They can't play football, but we like them, okay? And um, longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, oh my goodness, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And when he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion. He ran, he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But, incredible word, the father said to his son, uh, servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and let us do what? Let us celebrate. For my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and is found and he began to celebrate. But then there is the older brother, the older son who was in the field. He came and drew near to the house. He heard the music and the dancing. Now, that may be not Baptist because they were dancing. We wouldn't have done that, okay? And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said, well, your brother's come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he received back safe and sound. But what did he do? He was angry refused to go in, and his father came out and treated him. And he answered, Father, look, for these years I served you. I, I never disobeyed your command, I, I, and yet you uh, have never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, he didn't even want to say he was my brother, he has come, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed and fattened the, cat, the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you'll always be with me. And all that is mine is yours. It is fitting that we would celebrate and be glad. For your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and now he is found. You may be seated. Certainly when you look at this chapter, it appears to be that the central character of this would have been the lost sheep or the lost coin or even the lost son. And any of us in this room who have ever been transformed by the grace of God can kind of live vicariously and someone living in a far country and someone coming to the place of emptiness. And, and you look at that and you say, my goodness, what a great story of the prodigal son. But in reality, the central character is not the prodigal son. It is the father. It is the father who waits, who is looking for the son to come. It is the shepherd who looks at the sheep and says to the 99, I'm going to leave you even in the open country. I'm going to go find that other one. Or the, the woman who possibly was a widow and that coin would have meant so much to her life is searching diligently. As you begin to look at this, the central character tells us that this parable, this series of parables, is about the heart of our Father, our God. That if you want to know anything about who God is, how he feels about lostness and the people around us that don't know Jesus, just look at this chapter and read that this series of parables is basically a self-revelation of God. It is God telling us about his heart 
telling us about who he is and what he is. And you look at this and you, you see this searching shepherd. You see this diligent woman. You see this father who is hurting and looking for his son to come home. And you begin to see something about the heart of God. And these three parables say to you and me that we have a God whose heart is for the lost. We have a God who cares about what's going on in this world. Now, this parable is set up by those first two verses. And you begin to realize that they are questioning Jesus' heart. They said, you know something? Uh, Why does this man spend his time around sinners? Now, by the way, that's not a bad thing. That someone would question a person's life that is constantly around those far from God. Because in, in our world today, we are told to be separate from the world. We are told to not love the world, neither the things that are in the world, but no place does the Bible speak to us about separating from people who are lost and people who are without God. In fact, you look at this text, and it describes some things about Jesus that I I think ought to be searching to you and me. It says, you know something? He, He gets with these people called sinners, and he receives them. Now, think about that word for a minute. He's not saying Jesus approved of them. He's not saying Jesus agreed with where their life was going. But he uses a word that he receives with them. And then the next word, and he eats with them. Because in that society, in that culture, when you got together with someone for a meal, it was an act of fellowship. It was saying to that person, I I want to get to know you better. I want to have a relationship with you. And here Jesus is condemned for this. Now, by the way, uh, Jesus was condemned about this very often. Do you remember when Matthew, the tax collector, came to follow Jesus? What's the first thing he did? He gathered all his buddies and he brought them into the presence of Jesus because he wanted them to know the Jesus that he knew. And people criticized Jesus for doing this. And by the way, John the Baptist was criticized for the same thing of him baptizing those who were tax collectors, those who were sinners. But what you see out of this text is God doesn't look with disdain upon those far from him. He doesn't look upon them as people that that, that do not count. He saw them as part of his creation, someone made in his image. And when Jesus came to this earth, he was very, very specific to make sure that God was there to embrace lostness and bring people into a relationship with him and bring people into some relationship so that they would know him. And he gives these parables of a shepherd who would leave 99 sheep and head after the one. The woman who, in losing the one coin, says she lit a lamp and she diligent, she searched. And that word diligent is a very important, it is a word of focus. It is to remind you and me that there is to be a focus to our lives. There is to be a focus to our churches. And yes, certainly it is on the 99 that would know him and have a relationship with him. But God's focus today when he looks out across the land is to understand there's still a sheep out there without him. There's still a coin that is lost. Now you say, well, what about the father? The father didn't pursue the son. Now, by the way, some of you in this room may be like others of us who have relatives and family members who are far from God. And you know what we want to do? We want to go get them, don't we? We want to go grab them and pull them. But in this particular situation, this father is someone who patiently waits upon God's work 
waits upon God's way, waits upon the fact that he knows that even though his son is in a far country, God is there and God's at work there. I think what you see of a father who sees a son who's far off says to us that that son was not very far from his heart. In fact, I I get the image as I look at this text that the father was day by day, moment by moment, looking across the horizon, hoping and praying and seeking that that son would come to him. And guess what? That's what God does. God looks about this land today and he sees lostness. Certainly, there's places where he's pursuing them diligently, but sometimes what he's doing is let them live out their life in such a place where they would get ready so they can receive the gospel. But what is God always doing with that person? He's always looking for them to come. He's always there with arms outstretched all day long to lostness in people who are far from God. And what did we find in these three parables? What we see revealed to us today is not the lostness of humanity, but the heart of God about humanity. So what can we learn from it this morning? I'm going to give you two or three things I think we can learn. First of all, I think we can learn that when you and I participate pursuing the lost diligently, we are united with the heart of God. Now, I can tell you, I like uniting with the heart of God in the kind of music that we had this morning. I love the song that were chosen. I, I love to worship with you. I love being in both of your rooms as I watch the leaders in worship. What are they trying to do? They're trying to draw our hearts into a relationship with God. And certainly, certainly worship is uniting our hearts with God. And God buoys us and lifts us up. And we keep these songs in our minds and in our hearts. But guess what? I'm convinced the place that we may fellowship with God more than any other place is when we participate with Him in seeking after the lost. In fact, out there on your wall, I I went out there this morning, Bill, and just looked at the number of people, and I've signed up for an hour myself. It's going to be next, uh, that Monday, uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning. And, and, And I thought about, my goodness, every one of those X's, represent a person that's going to be praying for the lost. Guess what happens when you begin to pray for the lost? God unites his heart with yours like maybe no other place. God loves our worship, loves our Bible studies, loves the times that we go search and minister. But whenever we turn our hearts to the lostness of the world, guess whose attention it gets? It gets God's attention. If you need during that week to have some fellowship with God. Why don't you go sign up for one of those hours? Maybe an afternoon. Maybe an all night. Why not sign up? Because guess what's going to happen? The moment you turn your heart to the lostness around you, guess whose heart turns towards you? God's heart turns towards you. Because God is a searching shepherd and a diligent woman and a praying father whose heart is broken because of the lostness of the people around us. And one of the ways we can find the power and anointing of God on our lives is when we take time to get on our knees before him and begin to pray about people who are lost and who are without Jesus. And I'd encourage you during that week, not only during that week, but on a constant basis, to turn your eyes towards what God turns his eyes towards, the lostness of people who are around you. And when you and I began to do that, 
What do we do? God joins his heart to us in fellowship. Maybe today in your life, you felt God's been a little distant. I'm reminded of the guy one time who's driving around in his pickup truck with his wife and she's over by the window and he's over by his window. And she said to him, do you remember when we used to sit next to each other in the truck? And he said, well, guess what? I didn't move. You did. Okay. Well, could it be today that the reason why we don't have closeness of God is we have moved. And we don't have the heart that God has for the lostness that's around us. And any time we join with him in praying and seeking and pursuing the lost, guess what God does? He unites his heart to us in a fellowship that can only be found in that place. But then also... I'm going to kind of move into a little place maybe that's a little uh, place of friction in the church today. That when we begin to pursue the lost, God's going to bring a joy and a celebration to his people that is contagious and supernatural. You, You look in this text, and the moment someone comes to faith, There is a celebration. The moment the sheep is found, if you will look at verses 6 and 7, he comes home and calls his friends together and says to him, Rejoice! I found the sheep that was lost. I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than than the 99 who come to church. Look at verses 22 through 24. Same kind of thing. But Father said, Whoa, bring quickly the best robe, put the ring on his finger, put the shoes on his feet, go out and kill the fattened calf and bring it. Let's celebrate together because someone who has been lost has now been saved. I'm afraid that what can happen to us in the church is we spend our time celebrating that the 99 have come, that the 99 have entered into the door. I can remember, Bill, some years ago, you know what preachers do and staff members, every Monday morning we get the stat sheet and how many did we have this year compared to last year? And, you know, is there enough money to pay everybody else because the preacher's going to be paid first, okay? and That sort of thing. But we ought to be asking, was there some celebration going on because of someone who was lost has now been saved? Maybe what's missing from our church life today and our own life is the fact we have become satisfied with sitting with the 99, patting each other on the back, enjoying the fellowship. Wow, it's sweet. I feel so at home in the fellowship of this church. It's a sweet fellowship. But what could begin to happen if we began to see people saved? What kind of celebration would we have? We say, well, wait, wait, Gary. There's a point in which we don't go with this celebration stuff, all right? You know, we got to keep our hands down. We have a section for those who raise one hand, a section for those who don't raise a hand, the section for those who may raise two hands every once in a while, all right? But you know something? We don't want it to get out of hand. We don't want it to be something we can't control. I remember the first time that I went to Israel, by the way, is in 1983. Uh, my wife and I, we were in northwest Oklahoma. I was a pastor, and an evangelist, uh, Mike Gilchrist, came through and said, Pastor, you need to go to Israel. And So 10 of us in our church went to Israel. 
Uh, we were in a minivan. Our guide was our bus driver. Uh, minivan. We went all over Israel. It was transforming. One night he said, I'm going to take you to something you never experienced. I'm going to gather you together with a bunch of native Jewish people from this part of the world and, and other parts of the world. And, and we're going to go to a, a music deal with them. And so we said, oh boy, that'd be great. And so we got in our minivan and we went over to a section of town and the 10 of us sat on our little row and we made sure that we were drinking lemonade, not anything else, okay? Because that's what Baptists do. And we were there on our road and all of a sudden, uh, we looked around the room. This room holds about 200 people, kind of a little amphitheater, very much like the East Room is right there. And all of a sudden, a bunch of buses pull up and start unloading people and I want to say to you, now, I, I hate people being categorized like this now. There wasn't a person under the age of 70, okay? Probably 80 years of age. And I turned to the guy and he said, well, these are people who've come to visit Israel from other places, New York and stuff. And I said, wow, this is going to be a really wonderful evening. You know, uh, we're going to have to get something more than lemonade to celebrate in this place, all right? And, and you're sitting there on the row and and I'm looking around the room, and, and, and I, I, at that point in time, I was in my 30s, and, and people were twice as old as me. And, and I'm thinking, this is going to be a boring evening of just kind of watching it happen. Well, in a few minutes, an orchestra or band comes out, and an ensemble, and those people begin to celebrate their heritage. Wow. I have never in my life been as in a live room. I've never in my life seen as many people standing, clapping, rejoicing with their hands, shouting with their voices. And I watched an evening for about 45 minutes and they never stopped. That place was alive and it was crazy. And we're all, this 10 Baptists were sitting there watching this going on and watching this happen. It completely changed my attitude towards celebrating the Lord. Not the activity, but the heart. Because I began to realize these were Jewish people. This is 1983. This is about 35 to 40 years after the Holocaust. After the programs in Russia where so many Jews were murdered and killed. And these people probably had relatives they lost during that time. They knew what it was to be in a ghetto. They knew what it was to be in a prison camp. They knew what it was to have relatives go there and never see them again. And suddenly, 40 or 50 years later, they're free. There's something that has been transformed in their world. And you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to celebrate. And they didn't care what you thought about what they did. Because their hearts had been transformed and changed. And they were so glad to be in a place where those kind of things no longer happened. And I thought, my goodness, have we lost something in our church that we're critical of each other's celebrations? Or or could it be we're so far from participating in the bringing of loss to salvation, we've lost the joy. We've missed the celebration that ought to be going on. It's been so long since we participated in someone whose life was changed and was baptized. We just think it's for someone else. And so we sit on our hands and we sit here with our place. And very often these songs can be sung and no words come out of our mouth. 
Have we ceased to know how to celebrate? Someone's been redeemed. Someone who was lost has been saved. I'll take it a step further. There may be more older brothers in the church today than those who have been redeemed. Can I say that again? There may be more older brothers who are sitting there saying, why hasn't God done something for me? What's all this celebration about? I've got trouble and pain and difficulty in my life, and no one's ever done these kind of things for me. I'm afraid today uh, our churches are more filled with older brothers than redeemed, celebrating people who have witnessed and experienced redemption and now are participating with God in redemption. And when someone comes down the aisle that we've been praying for, we've been pursuing, and they get saved, we want to celebrate and say, my goodness, my goodness, this person was once lost, and now they're saved. This person was without God, and now they have God like never before. I remember some years ago, our church was trying to bring celebration. In fact, it's a little bit out of my experience in Israel to our worship experience. And and I would admit, I got a little grumbling and complaining about it. And one day I was, I like to walk the room before service and I ran onto a guy. I say, hey, wasn't that your grandson that was baptized last week? He said, oh yeah, there was. We exactly during that time period. We went over almost 90 straight Wednesday nights with one, at least one person coming to faith in Christ on Wednesday night in our church. And we had purposely opened our arms to a younger generation and understood how we needed to reach them. And that was the hope of our church for the future. Yes, it involved some changes and maybe some people did not like, but guess what? We're seeing people day by day, week by week, come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I looked at this person and I said, aren't you glad that we have joined with God in reaching out to a lost generation? And he kind of looked at me like, well, wait a minute here. I'm just glad my grandson was saved. I said, aren't you glad your church wants to see people like your grandson coming to faith in Jesus? You see... Whenever people get saved, people get transformed. There's celebration in God's church. Something happens that can only happen when we get to witness the redemptive process of God happening in someone's life. So what do we do? We want to participate with the heart of God. We want to celebrate with the heart of God when people come to salvation. But then one other thing, and I'll conclude. You cannot leave this story, this parable, without seeing that Jesus wanted them to know the process of redemption. What happens when someone's saved? Well, usually it begins with someone who's praying and someone who's pursuing, someone who's searching, someone who's looking. The lost people in this city will not just be changed because of something happening right here. It'll be something that probably that begins right here. And a group of people who search and seek and who are diligent and who are praying for lost people. But then we look at this young man. This young man goes into a far country. 
Certainly when you look at the news today and look what's happening in this world, there's a lot of people living next door to us that are living in the far country. And what happens in a life in the far country? Brings about an emptiness. This young man probably had a wealthy dad. He wasted it all. He became empty. You look around us. You watch people searching, searching for what gender they are, searching for what sexuality they're pursuing, searching for what ought to happen with money. All this searching, what is it speaking about? Speaking about people who are empty. They have no direction. All the direction they have is what they have within themselves. It's the only explanation they have. And it's a testimony to lostness. Even what's happening in Israel right now. I follow it very, very closely as a reminder that we have an evil one who's pursuing death and destruction and has always wanted to destroy the kingdom of God. That's what's happening not in Israel. It's what's happening in our neighborhoods. The lostness, the emptiness, the pursuit of life in some way. What's it saying to us? It's not to be done like this. Neither is it to be approved. What we should be doing is receiving and having a heart for those who are without Jesus. This young man, he's lost. It says in this text, one of my favorite phrases in all of the Bible, he came to himself. I've prayed that for people before, have you? Lord, let them really see who they really are. What can you pray for a neighbor Grandchild, son, daughter, neighbor, who? Pray they would come to themselves. But also pray they would know where the answer is. This young man knew it was back with his father that his life would get changed. Have we shared the truth enough to know, for the world to know? Where the answer is, I was driving on my way today and I, I turned on Lee Strobel's sermon, incredible sermon, that he was preaching at a place out of John one twelve. But as many as receive him, that those who believe in his name have become right to become the children of God. And I thought about the process of salvation. It begins with belief, but do you know something? People have to know what they need to believe in. And that's when we share the gospel. And when they believe, then they receive. And then they become a child of God. This young man knew that if he went back to the father, his father would receive him with open arms. And once again, he'd be called a part of that family. Wow, wow. The process of redemption. You could be here this morning in this room, and I don't, again, I, I feel fellowship in this room. I don't know many lives very much, but... Could it be today you came with a wife or husband or family member or, or, or just wandered into this place because it was a church? Our message to you today is if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and rose from the dead and is with the Father and one day going to come back in judgment, if you believe He is the one that can find salvation, if you will believe that but then receive it, receive it, not just believe it, even the devil believes it. That receiving is it making it yours. Much like Jesus received those sinners. And what happens when you do that? By God's grace and through His miracle, you become a child of God. 
That's the process of redemption. Transformation. That only God can do. We can't do it. But God can do it if you'll turn your heart to Him. Turn your life to Him. Receive Him. Because you believe in Him. And when you do that, you will become a child of God. Wow. A transformation will happen in your life. Not that a church can do. Not that a preacher can do. But that God Himself can do. Would you bow your head with me for just a moment? Let me just begin by asking, are you in this room today and you've come to the place that you believe, that you believe, but now's the moment in which you need to receive. You say, how do I do that? Well, you do it by opening your heart and praying. And saying, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I cannot save myself. But your death upon the cross brought salvation to me. And I want to receive you into my life. I want to receive the grace and the mercy that only you can bring. And at that moment, become your child. In a moment, we're going to stand and have an invitation song. If, if, you, if you would like to, to talk to someone about that relationship with Christ, you come. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. But let's take this a step further today. What do you want to do to participate with the heart of God in people coming to faith? Who will you pursue? Who will you diligently look for? Who will you be willing to pray for? Wow, when you do that, guess what you do? God joins your hand with His hand. Walks you into the work of His kingdom. Empowers you in ways you never could imagine. Because you're walking with the heart of the Father. Searching for the lost. What would He have you to do? To walk with Him in that process. Maybe it would be. You've realized you've been a little bit of an older brother at times. Maybe you're grumbling. can spoil the presence of God. Is it time to quit grumbling and go get in the celebration and the process? Father, take your word today and let it speak. God, you're the only one that can transform a life. You're the only one. And I pray, oh God, you would do it today. I pray, Father, there would be genuine transformation that would happen out of this room, these two rooms today. Whether it's in the east or right here, anyone without Jesus would open their heart and receive. 
do this work as only you can, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.